0: Mysteries, investigated by Patrick Muirhead. Inspired by real events on a remote tropical island, but all characters and action depicted are imaginary. Time of Innocence. Episode 5. I slipped from our bed at midnight, leaving Sebastian snoring blissfully and tiptoed guiltily from the house, knowing there would be domestic consequences. That was a certainty. I knew there was also danger in agreeing to meet a suspected double killer. Sometimes a journalist must take risks in meeting their contacts, occasionally immense risks, weighed carefully against potentially beneficial outcomes. Ras Robbie, although his musical output was little known to me, was a prominent Sejawa artist with a fond and loyal following. His self-penned tracks leaned heavily, as reggae often does, on the struggle of his ancestors, the supremacy of life on earth, and harmony with nature. They were not an angry call to arms, black against white. He was the island's high priest of peace, and with such faith in him I decided the possible rewards of meeting mitigated the risk. The coast road was dark and all but deserted, illuminated here and there by streetlights hazed with mosquitoes as I headed northwards. A tropical half-moon hung aslant in a cloudless night sky, as if toppled by a heavenly hand. The fronds of palm trees cast shadows in my path, and the windows of homes flitting by were all in darkness. A few minutes after passing the petrol station at Grandas, I was slowing to turn off the main road at Beolier. The narrow lane from there to the rocky shore that now serviced only a sparse few tin roofed shacks and small holdings would draw no passers by then, nor even midnight lovers. It was a certainty, thereafter, that I would be entirely alone. I dipped the Moak's headlamps as I pulled up next to clumps of dense undergrowth that now engulfed the ghostly ruins of the Equator Hotel. Long ago, its peerless cliff-top position had afforded privileged guests unimpeded ocean views beyond shimmering swimming pools and a thatched bar where white-jacketed waiters had once served cocktails and poolside snacks with warm island smiles. But now it stood forlorn in wilderness, a roofless wreck of empty passageways. Only skinks and saplings populated the cobwebbed corridors and stairwells, pushing up shattered floor tiles littered with debris, discarded rum bottles coated with lichen, and impatiently torn Durex sachets, the trash of stolen pleasures. I flipped open my phone and used the dim screen light to guide my way cautiously inside, broken glass crunching beneath the flimsy soles of my flip-flops, fearing that an unnoticed shard might impale me with an unspeakable infection. The place was musty and silent, not even the ocean rolling heavily onto the rocky shore below could be heard, as I pressed on deeper into the shadows, weaving first left, then right. Then out of nowhere I sensed another presence, two brisk steps, a quick sweeping motion and in an instant I was down, face to the floor, my phone skittering away from my hand across the dusty tiles, then complete darkness. I felt a huge burden on my back, squeezing the breath from me, pinioned by a weight that felt as heavy as a fallen ceiling. Did you keep your word, bro, like you promised? Hot breath whispered in my ear. Just you? You didn't tell nobody? I'm alone, I gasped. I promise. The immensity of pressure weighing me down was immediately released, and I gulped dirty air, a meaty hand gripping my arm, assisting me to my knees. I tried to calibrate my shadowy assailant, a familiar dreadlocked form slowly taking shape in the gloom. But why? I asked, brushing filth from my palms. I'll tell you everything, but first you must follow me. Rass Robbie's face was suddenly illuminated by a spark and the orange glow of a cigarette lighter's flame as he crossed to a window, transferring it to a candle wick. Come, he said. I followed him down a passageway, his lilting frame casting shadows in the candlelight that played around the walls. He led us down steps into the open moonlight past an elliptical void, the firmament's reflection swimming in the pool's sludgy bottom. Presently, he stopped beneath the unfallen remnants of a roof, partial shelter, where he'd established a makeshift camp. A sleeping bag lay unrolled next to a backless chair bearing a few precious treasures, an open book of poems, some beads, his phone and earphones, a tin of hand-rolling tobacco with cigarette papers, "'and the leftovers of a corned beef meal. "'The police are looking for you,' I said. "'I know it,' he replied. "'They think I had something to do with that stuff with the tourists, but...' "'He hesitated as he lit more candles "'and placed them carefully around the floor between us. "'I swear I had nothing to do with it. "'I wasn't even there.' "'But witnesses have come forward naming you,' I said." And there's some evidence. They found a leather raster bracelet they think is yours. Robbie stroked his bare wrist. That's how it looks, but not how it was, he said. And if you really thought I killed them, no way you would have met me. It was true. So why are you hiding? What are you scared of? I said. Because I know, bro. He jabbed his chest with his thumb. Trust me, Robbie knows. Sometimes these guys, the cops, they see the locks. He tugged his hair. But they don't see the person wearing them. That's how it is for my people. It was a universal complaint. Judgment by appearance and lifestyle. A distinction drawn sometimes even by those of colour among their own. A rejection of difference. But you have to face them sometime, Robbie, I said looking around. You can't hide out here for long. Let's face it, the room service isn't exactly five-star. He smiled. You're funny, and I trust you. When you were on TV, you were the only one who asked the right questions. Makes you my brother. It makes trouble, I said, but thanks. He extended a clenched fist, holding it steadily aloft. I stared at it warily for a moment before lifting mine in reciprocity and our knuckles briefly touched. Robbie went on. I need you to help me, man. Investigate. Find out what happened and show them I didn't do it. You came to my party, so you know. We were together, all of us drinking, having a good time, yeah? You know. He was right. We had spent that Saturday night together. I levelled with him. But I can't vouch what you did after the party, Robbie. Sebastian and I, we left soon after your brother. It was late. After the party, OK. Robbie mulled over his memories. Yeah, maybe it was late. I scored some weed off a taxi parat, and the boog took me home. Just weed, I said, from an unlicensed taxi driver. Robbie nodded. Right, brother. Just some herb. I don't do no other shit. No hard drugs? Not even cocodamol, for example? Not even, mon talon. That stuff kills the creative vibe. Blocks the channel, if you get my meaning. He pushed back his locks. This man, I can pay you. He seemed determined, and I thought about it. Why don't you ask your actual brother Rich for help? He was there, too. You have an alibi. Your own blood. Don't want to make no trouble for him, he said. He gets embarrassed. I love him, and he loves me. we twins, right? But I can't drag him into this. In that case, I said, we'd better find that taxi per There was a note waiting for me on the fridge when I awoke late the following morning. It said simply, but seriously? Scored in huge admonishing marker pen. I had to admire Sebastian's elegant economy of style, but recriminations would have to wait. There were leads to follow, and I had barely time to scoff cold mouthfuls of the previous night's rouguille saucisse before launching myself once more on a journey into town. There's only one Hindu temple in Seychelles, the place of worship for the country's third largest religious population after Catholics and Anglicans. A startling structure with a towering pitched roof colourfully adorned with effigies, it occupies an imposing position overlooking Victoria's commercial heart, La Bazaar, where many of its worshippers, old merchant families and more recent waves of incomers carry on trade. I had heard that Nerved Bandara would be there that morning, and mounted the steps, passing into the sweet rose-scented stillness within, where I slipped out of my deck shoes to stand a little lost in stockinged feet. But like a graceful hero in some heavenly scene from a Bollywood dream, a bare-chested youth, his lower half swathed in a simple cotton dhoti, caught my eye and approached offering a namaste and a smile, then led me. He pointed out a young man who'd completed his devotions and was preparing to leave. I thanked him and waited for the Sri Lankan to cross the cool marble in my direction. Mr. Bandara, I said. His eyes locked mine, the perplexity of an encounter with an Anglo-Saxon clearly apparent in them. Can you spare a moment? What is it you are wanting? Are you police? he whispered no i'm a journalist well a, a private investigator really i said thinking of brass Robbie's proposal and offer of remuneration he retrieved his shoes and kneeled to lace them i cannot talk with any private investigator or the police he said i'm wishing you leave me alone this is causing me great shame great discomfort I stared down at the Tamil's luxuriant and neatly parted mop of jet-black hair. Well, I'm not working for the authorities, I said. I just want to know what you can remember when you finished your evening shift at the American Women's Villa on Saturday night. I can say nothing. My tongue is making much hardship already. Did the police mistreat you, I said? He rose, short in stature like me, his opal eyes meeting mine evenly. They did not, but always they are suggesting unholy things, making feeling unclean. Already I am having this at the resort, the American ladies laughing and making touching. Already I have wife and two children in Sri Lanka, and no one listening. When I am telling Mr. Lawin GM, he is blaming me, and says I must stay silent. So now I am silent. The American women assaulted you? Sexually assaulted you? Not only this. I saw them as man should only see his wife. Undressed, I said. The hotel butler nodded. And this greatly disturbed you? Very most definitely, he said. For Sri Lankan men like me, much better keeping mouth shut. In Seychelles, much better this way. Already Seychelles think Sri Lankans stealing Seychels' job, but Sri Lankans only wanting work for family. The notion of killing for honour swept fleetingly across my mind, but I was inclined to believe the evidence of my eyes and my gut, not populist prejudices. Before me, I saw a humble, hard-working man quietly devoted to his duty as a husband and father, not a cold-blooded killer likely to administer a vengeful dose of cocodamol, nor anything else. So there's nothing you saw or heard, I said, nothing that might pinpoint how two women died from a fatal overdose together that night in the villa. There was a commotion outside their door around midnight. You weren't aware? I am hearing about it, and Mr. Lawin-Giam is calling me, but everything is settled, so I am going back to staff accommodation. Many people are coming, and now police funding speak with the man in the garden, so there is nothing more I can tell you. What man in the garden? I said. Rastafarian man, he said. Man making entertainment reggae songs in the bar. He's hiding in the bushes and running away. This man is naming Raz Robbie. I retrieved the moke, pondering the interplay of Nirved's account with others as I navigated the one-way circuit at the town centre at crawling speed. Lunchtime traffic and office workers clogged its narrow streets. Like a flash flood, the hungry were spilling off the pavements, forming queues for their midday takeaway boxes as car horns honked and friends waved, slowing the flow as rides were offered or passengers offloaded. The possibility struck me that Nirved Bandara, alone and apparently unbeknownst to police, had provided a positive identification of the dreadlocked man, not merely repeated mutterings of hotel hearsay. Sebastien had mentioned his hospitality students on work placements at the resort had seen someone matching Robbie's description and named him. But even if they were mistaken, busy with their bar duties and paying little close attention, the Sri Lankan butler's memory recalled a first-hand sighting. That was a much more troubling and perplexing proposition, impossible to ignore. This conundrum was revolving in my mind as the moke edged slowly down Albert Street towards Mahe's celebrated clock tower and the museum where we'd been drinking with Robbie and his brother in the garden on that fateful Saturday evening. As the little car, its sides open to the ventilating breeze, filtered past the tower, its bell began striking the hour. Instantly, it revived my own shattering recollection. The midnight chimes. I remembered the tolling of the bell that had prompted Rich to excuse himself and leave our company. The famous clock tower, a perfect witness, provider of an alibi proof that Robbie had been with us, toasting his album release and reminiscing of our National Youth Service, far from the resort on the other side of the island, where two tourists at that exact moment lay dying. He simply could not have been in two places at once. My heart was thumping. After this sudden, thrilling realisation, there soon followed troubling questions. If not Robbie, Then who was the Rastafarian that Nirved and others claimed they'd seen? And what about the incriminating leather bracelet recovered from the undergrowth? If Robbie really was innocent, a belief I felt earnestly, then who was trying to frame him, and why? Who were the placid Rastas' enemies? And the biggest question of all, if the two American sisters had died by a possibly murderous hand, as police were now beginning to suspect, then who was their killer? Why and how were the murders committed? I had answers to find, but first there was Sébastien's silent fury to face for my midnight deception. He would not easily forgive such treachery, slipping away without a word for a secret assignation, however noble the intention. The danger it had courted would be a festering wound, made more livid by the menace of recent Grigri threats. As I drove away from town on the mountain road that carried me back to the beach house, I mused over a mental shortlist of my own most recent enemies. One, above all others, stood clear. I needed to draw a firm line under an unpleasant distraction, and so I decided words and not actions were my strongest weapon. A letter should be written. The- Um. The Mahe Mysteries was created by Patrick Muirhead and Lindsay Farabo. It was written, narrated, and produced by Patrick Muirhead. Music was by Isham Rath. It was an operculum media production recorded on location in Mahe Island, Seychelles. I'm Eliza. And I need you to listen to me. Have you ever felt so much that you don't know where to put it all? And you wonder if anyone would notice if you screamed? Because you want to. Scream for the ones they've hurt. The ones they've taken. Scream for yourself. These are my words. My story from my perspective. Because I know you'll hear other versions. Because I want you to have a chance to believe mine. Or at least hear it. If you're getting this, it's already over. But if one of you listens, really listens, it won't be for nothing.